0: Et tu, Brute? And you, Brutus? These are the famous last words of Julius Caesar as he was murdered and betrayed by his ally Marcus Brutus. At least the way Shakespeare tells it. But as we will learn from my guest today, Caesar likely never said this phrase, and historians are still wrestling with Brutus's history-changing deed two thousand years after the fact. Catherine Tempest is senior lecturer in Roman history and Latin literature. Her research concentrates on the literature, history, and political life of the late Roman Republic, with particular interests in oratory and rhetoric, all aspects of Cicero, ancient letters and biography. She is the author of Cicero, Politics and Persuasion in Ancient Rome, and Hellenistic Oratory, Continuity and Change, which she co-edited with Christos Cremitus. She joins me from London via Skype to discuss her latest book, Brutus the Noble Conspirator the you can't make this
1: up history podcast bringing you strange but true things from the past it's not the average history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction and super unique
0: Catherine tempest welcome to the show
1: Thank you very much.
0: So I wanted to talk, talk to you a little bit about your new book, Brutus, the Noble Conspirator. Um, very interesting book. I very much enjoyed uh, reading it. And uh, Brutus is uh, more of a controversial uh, figure than I ever thought. Um, <laughs> so I understand that you're a bit of an expert uh, in this area. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your earlier work?
1: Sure. I. Um... I work over in the UK, in London, where I've taught Latin literature and Roman history at the University of Rome for just over a decade now. And I, I teach modules with wide-ranging interests from introductory level uh, through to more specialised options, but in my research I focus primarily on the period of the late Roman Republic, which is broadly defined as from about 133 to 31 BC. So I'm interested in Roman Republican history literature, but especially Cicero, um, who is Rome's foremost orator, who neatly brings these uh, dual interests together. He published vast amounts on an array of topics, including works on philosophy, politics, religion, and rhetoric. But it's his letters and his speeches which offer us a fascinating window into his life and times, as as well as the fascinating uh, characters that filled his world, brutus among them.
0: Yes, that that period of the late Roman Republic, there's um, so much transition going on, and there's a lot of well-defined people in that period. Um, so I think you have a lot to work with.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we, we get character sketches, some of the greatest people uh, from Roman history, from Caesar to Pompey the Great. Um, it was when I was writing my first book on Cicero that I really became interested in Brutus, though, because... When I looked for a decent book on him, I was struck by the lack of material available compared to some of these other people uh, around. So there were some excellent scholarly articles and books that treated his reception. So how he's been portrayed in later art, literature, or used as a vehicle to think through philosophical issues. But there wasn't anything that really probed our ancient material folly. And so the decision to write a, a, a book on Brutus then was easy. Um, and, and the material was there in Cicero.
0: When you started to write this book, um, to what extent did you have material to work with? Um, How much primary source material is there? How did you go about researching this?
1: Yeah, well, there's not a great amount to be honest, but compared to what we've got for other ancient figures, it's not altogether bad. Uh, The difficulty was more often how to interpret the evidence. So, as I've mentioned, the only eyewitness for Brutus's life is Cicero. Um, And we get uh, snapshots of Brutus through his letters he had his own likes and dislikes about the man, so we have to weigh up his verdicts very carefully and try to think about what are they telling us. Uh, Cicero, as I've mentioned, was Rome's foremost advocate and orator, so we're always being presented with the case he wants to present. Fortunately, we do have other evidence, other primary sources. So we've got an ancient biography of Brutus, which was written by Plutarch, um, a Greek intellectual, but he was writing about 150 years later, so. Obviously, he didn't have the same kind of experience of Roman political life in the Republic, so he can only really be as good as the sources he was using, um, which were very often one-sided. He draws on some of the material that Brutus's friends had written about him, for example. But Plutarch also had his own moralizing agenda, so his account was very selective, and it nearly always glorifies Brutus's actions. So, in, so in Brutus
0: the- was a. A polarizing figure, even from the very start, and historical sources kind of weighed him pro or or con, right?
1: Absolutely. We've lost a lot of the material that's con. (laughs) Um, We have to dig deep, and you can see traces of it. So a large part of the problem, really, is that by the time people were writing about Brutus, they were writing through the lens of history and with hindsight, and they'd started making judgments about whether he had done the right thing, um, what kind of action had led to the assassination of Caesar. And so the other problem is that he only actually became interesting from about 44 BC uh, to our later historians. And then he only had two years left to live anyway. So we don't get a fully rounded picture um, by any extent. So they they weren't interested in his childhood. Uh, They weren't interested in in what had affected him. They weren't really interested in what we knew about Brutus um, as a young man. It slips in and out of view but really we're dealing with hindsight and verdicts and we have to really read between the line of our sources to tease out any traces of the hostile viewpoint that comes through the historical record.
0: So biography in the sense that we think of it is is very difficult.
1: Absolutely. It is so difficult to write a biography of a historical figure and I, I try to claim that point as, as fully as I can we can take the evidence we've got, we can weigh it against what we think we know, but getting a fully rounded life is, is near impossible. Um, we just don't have the facts.
0: All right. And uh, just a side question here before we move on um, to his life. Um, did Brutus himself leave us any material to work with?
1: Sadly not. Um, he did write uh, quite extensively in his own days. So he wrote treatises on virtue and philosophical questions. He wrote speeches attacking um, some of the people that he didn't like. Now, one of the things that makes history most fun is I've moaned about the lack of evidence. However, piecing it together is a great sort of creative act. Um, and we can imagine that some of Brutus's own works had influenced the way that he was received by later generations. So he might have been shaping how he was to be remembered, but we... Personally, we, we, we cannot see traces of, of that today. We do have, sorry, I, I lie, we do have some letters um, which were exchanged between Cicero and Brutus, which are really fascinating letters, and um, a handful survived, so through them we can actually start to hear something of Brutus' own voice, to hear his frustrations at that point in time in, in history. Um, these letters all survived from uh, the period after the assassination of Caesar, and when Brutus was starting a campaign. So again, in those critical years after Caesar and leading up to his death, do have a few words in his own hand.
0: Probably a a lot more than you can say for a lot of ancient figures, because further back in time you go, I'm I'm sure you have less and less um, primary source material.
1: Absolutely, even among his contemporaries, uh, Brutus stands out, and I think that is in, in large part because of the fascination that followed him after the assassination.
0: All right. Well, what I I really liked about your book, um, when you start to talk about his early life, because there's not a whole lot of documentation on him himself, you do go on to talk about, well, what was the Roman world like when Brutus is coming of age? Um, So can you start there? Tell us a little bit about the Roman world.
1: Yeah, it was uh, pretty brutal and competitive, to be honest. Um, And one that would have placed a great pressure on young men like Brutus, who were very much expected to live up to their family name and achieve glory, which for most Romans very often meant reaching the consulship, which was the top position in political life.
0: Can you um, mention for a moment uh, his family name?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, So Brutus came with a lot of cachet. Um, His first ancestor, Lucius Junius Brutus, had, according to tradition, been the man who founded the Roman Republic, which is the period of history we're in. It follows immediately after the period of the kings. And so it goes right back into the mists of times in which a whole political constitution is being founded on the ideal of libertas, on, on liberty, that people should be free to play a part in the political game, to the freedom of speech. And This Lucius Junius Brutus had expelled the kings in 509 BC and taken an oath and, and made the people swear an oath, actually, that never again would they let the, the Rome be governed by kings. So Brutus could really build his political identity on that tradition and, and really take political capital out of it.
0: Those sound like some awfully big shoes they have to fill to live up to.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And this is one of the pressures that's placed on young men living up to their ideals. Um, it meant very, it was it was very important for a young man to be considered noble or for a Roman to be considered noble. And these were, The families that could point to a consul in their family tradition, men who had made the top office of state already. On the other side, to be a consul could also ennoble one's family in future generations. So this is why so much importance was attached to that position. As we have seen, Brutus was one of the lucky ones in this regard. He had the famous name, he had wealth and access to a whole network of supporters through his family connections. So he was very noble in the Roman sense of the word. But to go back to your question about the, um, the Roman world that Brutus would have come of age in, part of the reason Roman politics was so messy in this period was that for the men who lacked one or other of these advantages, they often had to look for other paths to power. So they were the outsiders, they were going up against the big guns, and they would look for other paths like military glory or populist measures. So Roman politics had operated on a series of uh, checks and balances, as we'd call it today, and the electorate still had some say. So this is the important thing about his world. There was a shocking gap between the rich and the poor. And although some politicians doubtless sought to protect the interests of Rome's people, there were others who were going to ride the tide of populism, so to speak, to to make their way, hoping that they would get elected to high office or appointed onto lucrative campaigns. And from that perspective, perspective, politics became pretty cutthroat and It was coming to a head in the time that Brutus was coming of age, this disparity between the haves and the have-nots, those who made it to political office and those who didn't. And these were very much uh, in in the boiling pot and about to bubble over.
0: So there's lots of positioning and jockeying for power.
1: Absolutely. That's why these big names come down to us, because you've got Pompey the Great with his teenage adventures, going on killing sprees and his great military exploits at the beginning of his career, followed by Caesar, who wants to outdo him and be an even bigger name. And then you've got the bigwig Crassus, the richest man in Rome, who also wants his share of the glory. And these are just the names we hear about. There's tons of men going for the top position. I mean, we know there are about 600 senators at any given point. Uh, you would elect 20 cuistas a year. That was at the bottom of the, the, the rung of office. But you'd only have two consuls at the top for any year. So trying to, to get through that bottleneck at the top of the political office, the, the, the ladder of offices, as it's so-called, was a particularly brutal moment. Everyone trying to outgun the other.
0: Since I'm uh, from the United States, from an American perspective, the, the consul is somewhat of an executive. Uh, position in relation to the Senate, which would be the legislative?
1: Um, sort of. Is, so is that a the, proper
0: way to understand it?
1: It's a tiny bit more complex. The Senate is the only permanent organ in the state, but they're not legislative. They can only vote proposals, which the people are then expected to vote through. So they can issue their decrees, they're then presented to the people and the people say, yes, is, is the ideal working of it. The consul is elected really as a steering executive, so he has no executive power himself, but there would be two consuls at a time, each taking it in turn to guide the Senate in their deliberations, but they were really acting on experience to help people through the day-to-day management of empire. This issue's come up. How do we deal with it? What should we advise the people? Present the bill to the people, and then the people in the assembly had to ratify the legislation through various committees and operations. Uh, we had several voting committees uh, by tribes or by centuries. So we get a much more complex system in which really the people with the say were the people of Rome, the electorate. But people would never, scholars are very, very cagey on the whole issue of whether it was a democracy, because ideally most, or in, in the, the way that the Romans saw it at least, it was a, it was a bond of trust. The Senate knew how to advise the people and the people would ratify them. Where the problems came in was when the Senate didn't agree with one another and that's where we get the divisions.
0: Okay, so a far cry from say democracy in Greece.
1: Absolutely, yes. Democracy in Athens, every vote counted. Um, in, In Rome it was by representation but the critical thing is the wealthy had by far the biggest share of the votes, that it was all class-based in a hierarchy of who owned how much money, who had how much property, and, and thereafter the votes were distributed, always making sure that the wealthy had the greatest say.
0: Okay, and what is Brutus's role in this political hierarchy?
1: So, Brutus starts out pretty much as we would expect any young man to do so, but he was coming of age in exceptional times, the politics of the 60s and 50s BC, and he definitely had a shaky start. But Brutus had the family, he had the networks. When um, Brutus is first mentioned in the ancient sources, in uh, Cicero's letters at least, he was implicated in a conspiracy. So that was even before he'd come to serve um, on the Senate. But it's only a snapshot and it's nothing uh, big, but he had been implicated in a plot to kill Pompey the Great, which uh, fortunately for Brutus came to nothing. Uh, his biographer, Plutarch, tells us um, that he went on an official appointment in Cyprus, which we also hear about from uh, Cicero later on. And in this period, we know that Brutus was more keen on earning his millions and preparing for the expensive lifestyle of a senator. Um But by about 54 BC, we can start seeing him back on the political scene. And this is where he's really starting to make his entry point into the political life. First of all, he acts as a moneyer in charge of producing the year's coinage. And this is a great opportunity for uh, a young man like Brutus to get his name out because you'd brand your name onto it as well as the image you wanted to portray of yourself. So there was a new Brutus on the block and he links it very clearly back to his ancestor, Lucius Junius Brutus. So and, he can
0: use the mint as his own propaganda machine.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and through there, I was talking earlier about some of the gaps in our textual evidence, but the coins really offer us a fantastic parallel to try and, and piece together this jigsaw um, to get a fuller perspective of what's going on. It seems to have been uh, successful, at least because he was appointed quaestor in 53 BC or, or uh, thereabout. And that means from that moment on, he was uh, a junior senator. But important that he would become a senator for life. And what he would be doing from there on would be trying to climb this ladder of offices from the quaestorship and um, to the praetorship to the consulship. There was there was also another run called the Idolship, which uh, he could have taken, uh, but he didn't. Um, at the time of the assassination of Caesar, he would made it as far as the praetorship. and um, He didn't live as long to become a consul, but there in a nutshell is the political career as he progressed um, through it throughout his, of his life. Again, for this period, we don't hear much about Brutus in our sources because they're very much overshadowed by men higher up the political ladder. But I've, I've mentioned the importance of the coins in that uh, bigger scenario.
0: You mentioned he's starting his political career and working his way up the ladder during extraordinary times. The biggest issue Romans are talking about at this time is the triumvirate. Can you talk about that and Brutus's stance on it?
1: Absolutely. This was the biggest shadow being cast over uh, Roman political life there, and that's the political union between Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus. Now, that's often referred to you've just done there as the first triumvirate, as the kind of convenient shorthand, but it was not an officially sanctioned coalition. It was basically just that three of the most ambitious men in Rome had pooled their interests to get what they wanted. and then once they'd started on that track, there was no stopping them really. So they were pushing through measures for themselves, for the friends, the military command here, uh, a great deal there. So we only get occasional glimpses of Brutus again because the, the documents don't, uh, sort of, our documents don't sort of tell us much about it. But we can take some of the information we know. So, for example, we know that Brutus had a personal grudge against Pompey the Great, who'd been responsible for the death of Brutus's father some years um, earlier in another civil conflict. So we know that Brutus did not like Pompey at all. Uh, We know that many of the younger generation were getting fed up. They called these men the proud kings in reference to that hatred of one man rule. Only this was a three man rule with the same effect the political processes were buckling under the three men who were getting their candidates into position and and divvying up the favours. So we get some aspect there, and I've already mentioned the coins that Brutus was minting in this period, and and these are really lovely, and we've got a couple that we can still look at today. And on the first, he struck the personified image of libertas, of of liberty, which he connected to the uh, image on the reverse, Uh, to his ancestor, Lucius Junius Brutus. So this Brutus, as we've already heard, had freed Rome back in the day when it was a monarchy. So the message was something like a protest against the regime of the three. It's invoking ideas of liberty and Brutus's ancestor. So that's one of the ways he's setting up his political profile. Um, A second coin goes further still, and on that coin, Brutus struck portraits of two of his ancestors, on the front, Lucius Junius Brutus again, but on the back was a guy called Servilius Ahala, who had, um, who was famous for killing another would-be tyrant in Rome's history. So this coin basically documents Rome's historical resistance to tyranny and the role of Brutus's family as the champions of liberty. So we've got those two coins that can give us some idea. They're a bold assertion of Brutus's ideals, however we want to take them. Um, whether he's currently tapping into a current climate of resistance, directing it just at Pompey, who we know that he hated. But we also know that Brutus was publishing speeches at this time. One of them was attacking the dictatorship of Pompey, as he called it. Another was sanctioning the murder of uh, people who caused disturbances at Rome. So we get quite an interesting insight into what Brutus is up to this period even if we don't actually have much direct evidence other than the coins. So I think we can certainly put him in the resistance movement. He was probably feeling uh, resentful that political processes had stopped, that elections weren't free, open and fair. And again, as always, All of our judgments are clouded by what we know he went on to do um, and and that of course was to kill a would-be tyrant
0: so the challenge comes in in trying to figure out if he's purely an idealist or if this is a lot of personal animosity against pompey
1: i always think there's uh, an aspect of undermining brutus when we call him an idealist i think yes he is partly an ideologue but he's also tapping into dissatisfaction with the political regime, with the way things are. Certainly, there are a lot of men who look back with a nostalgic vision of what the republic was, how great it had been in the days of their ancestors. That wasn't the republic that they were living under. They were living under a particularly brutal period of time. But they couldn't quite see it like that. They knew nothing else. but So they wanted back that ideal.
0: We mentioned uh, Pompey and and Brutus is involved with the resistance there, but you also have the figure of Julius Caesar, who comes on the scene as a dictator in his own right. What's the relationship between Brutus and Caesar?
1: (laughs) This one is the stuff of legends, of course, and um, we can only really make an educated guess about the early years. Notoriously, uh, Brutus's mother, Sevilia, had been embroiled in a rather public affair with Caesar after the death of her second husband. So that would be in about 59 BC when Brutus was making his his way onto the political arena. Uh, this meant that her daughters, Brutus's half sisters, were married to men who were prominent in Caesar's circle. Caesar must have been around Brutus's house quite a lot. Um, And there are some grounds for believing that Caesar may have looked out for Servilia's son, Brutus, and helped him in his early years. And so much so, in fact, that later rumors suggested that uh, Caesar could even have been Brutus's real father. But um, that's a very (laughs) unlikely story that uh, I won't go into here. We've um, got more certain evidence for their relationship after the Civil War. So we've just heard a little about the regime of the three, Pompey, Caesar, Crassus. But by the end of the 50s BC, that was in absolute pieces. Uh, Crassus had died in a disastrous military campaign. And then the world just simply wasn't big enough, as one writer puts it, for Pompey and Caesar, who were at war with each other within a couple of years. um, And open warfare broke out in 48 BC.
0: I really like that quote, that the world wasn't big enough for these two men.
1: Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? It comes from a later writing called uh, Lucan, who wrote a, a poetic treatment of the Civil War. Um, at a time when the Romans are looking back at their history and going, what what, what happened? How did we get there? Um, but warfare had broken out between Pompey and Caesar. And Brutus actually threw in his lot with Pompey, which might come as a surprise given the personal grudge we know that he harbored against him. But Pompey claimed to represent the side of the traditionalists in the Senate, the people who believed in the Senate's right to rule. There were men like Cato, Brutus's uncle, on that side, and all of his network of supporters, including his father-in-law, because he'd married into a very um, influential family as well. So Brutus was partially compelled, but also by both by his uh, his family, his his ideals, to fight on the side of. Brutus, and it's from this point that sorry, fight on the side of Pompey. But it's from this point that more evidence emerges on the nature of Brutus and Caesar's relationship, because the story goes that Caesar ordered his men that uh, they should spare Brutus if they saw him fighting on the battlefield at Pharsalus. And thereafter, when uh, Caesar wreaked havoc and annihilated Pompey's forces, Brutus was the first to seek pardon from Caesar. So he'd been spared. He sought pardon uh, formally. And after that, Brutus actually rose to prominence under Caesar. And he seems even to have supported him at the beginning, working for reconciliation after the Civil War. What turned Brutus to kill his friend and benefactor is another story. Uh, that must be a mixture of his own conscience, Caesar's increasing megalomania, is, as well as a good old dose of ambition on Brutus's part. And that's the only way we can probably start to explain the assassination, combined with the philosophical Uh, Reasoning and the ideals we've already seen concerning liberty, but whatever their personal connections and whatever the nature of Brutus's relationship with Julius Caesar, ultimately I think all we can say is that they were two men with very different ideas about the future direction of Rome, and and that is ultimately where it ended.
0: You've described a very complicated situation, and it's very hard to try to simplify and point to any one clear factor um, that caused the assassination. Um, For people who might not be familiar, I mean, I think most people are familiar with Julius Caesar through the Shakespearean play, but uh, can you describe, walk us through the assassination, and then can you describe the immediate fallout uh, of what happened afterwards? Uh, What I really liked about your book is you spend quite a bit of time talking about the ramifications of what happened after, and, and I learned a lot from that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, This is the period of history that is really fully documented about Brutus's life. So hurrah, we've got a ton of evidence. And um, the downside and the caveat, of course, is it's all written with hindsight again, as I mentioned right at the onset. Sure. When we piece together the assassination of Caesar, um, all of the sources seem to attach increasing, sorry, all of the sources seem to attach Importance to a catalogue of honors that were being paid to Caesar he was being given incredible honors, divine honors. they were adding days of festivals, they were saying temples should be built for him, and um, all of these ways in which Caesar was being elevated above the normal electorate has, has really got people 's back up but more than that, being in power in Rome was no longer in the hands of the people. It meant that you had to stay in the hands. had to stay in Caesar's favor. So politics had changed fundamentally. There was Caesar's increasingly erratic behavior. He had paraded his mistress, Cleopatra, on the streets of Rome. He was having temples built for him. He was saying, I'm not a king, I'm Caesar. Then there's the climactic event that, of course, people will know from Shakespeare, which is when he's offered the crown and turns it down. Now, all of these stories accumulate after the death of Caesar, partly in justification. So people are thinking, why did it happen? As soon as you have a major trauma or a major event or a major news story, the, the first thing people want to know is the whys, and that starts get peace, get getting pieced together, and we see that happening in our sources. So Caesar himself caused such animosity that people wanted to assassinate him. The... Effect he was having on political processes, and the fact that men like Brutus, Cassius, and all the other conspirators were dependent on staying in his good favor for their own political career meant that there was no freedom anymore. They had to act in a way that guaranteed Caesar's favor and, and to stay in it. So these are part. And he, he appoints Brutus.
0: himself, right, dictator mm. for the rest of his life, correct?
1: He is appointed, yes, the, uh, the, the proposal is made. And up until that point, he had taken the dictatorship um, at various spells. The dictatorship at Rome had only ever meant to be a stopgap in an emergency, held for a period of six months at a maximum. Yet Caesar had been taking it on and off since 49 BC, and it was now 44 BC. And sometime late January, early February, he gets appointed dictator perpetuo, uh, we translate this as dictator in perpetuity. Now, this could mean one of two things. Either dictator for life uh, is one translation of the Latin, or it could be dictator for a potentially unlimited term of office, uh, which is still pretty bad. Um, but people didn't know what was going to happen anymore. and um, He had turned down the title of king, but it didn't really matter because Caesar was ultimately killed for, for, for what he was already, and that was someone who had stationed himself Above the political processes, above legal processes. Caesar was law and Caesar was dictator now for this period of time that people didn't want to to ride out. That must have been one of the defining moments in the the plot to kill Caesar. Um, You asked how that happened, and we don't really know. Um, We get lovely snippets from later writers that describe a series of secret meetings that the conspirators as a group may never have actually met altogether, but that there were linchpins operating to sort of filter out the information so that it would all happen. It must have been done fast, and it must have been done in the utmost secrecy, because there were lots of conspiracy plots in ancient Rome. We hear about them all the time. Caesar had been fearing an assassination attempt since 46 BC. It could have been one earlier. We saw that Brutus had been implicated in a plot to assassinate Pompey. So the fact it happens means is, is something quite remarkable. So it must have been quick. It was effective. Because of that, we can only guess at how it worked. Uh, but it was a pretty bungled attempt on the day. They they, they managed to get him to the uh, Senate meeting with some difficulty, and then it was a bloodbath, basically. Uh, the immediate fallout you asked about as well.
0: One uh, quick aside. Yes. Is there evidence for him saying the famous lines from uh, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare, et tu, Brute? <laughs>
1: That is one of my favourite questions, and the answer is yes and no. Some sources tell us that Caesar simply folded his toga across him and fell down in silence. Other sources reply, so other sources tell us something similar, but they tell us he said it in Greek, and that the words were Kai su uh which means and you, child or kid, and technon doesn't imply a biological connection, so. Um, that there's no idea there that he was uh, Caesar's son. But what I really love about this point is that Kai Su is actually a curse. It's a back at you type of curse. And this is a Caesar I can believe in. As he died, that he would curse the man that was killing him. And it's also the first half of an ancient Greek proverb, which is something like that. And you too will have a taste of my power, which actually has the forewarning that what goes around comes around. So. We don't actually know what Caesar said as he died. He didn't say et tu Brute, that was definitely a Shakespearean construct. But if he did speak, it could have been something far more aggressive.
0: Which is quite dramatic in its own right.
1: Oh, that's much more dramatic. And the Shakespearean um, sort of reconstruction of it, is very much linked to the dilemma of Brutus, the, the man who has to decide between a moral, personal obligation and his public duty and his patriotic duty to his country. And we see Shakespeare's Brutus caught on the horns of that dilemma all the way through the play. So it's only right that at the moment of Caesar's death, it focuses on the ultimate act of betrayal, for which, for which Brutus had become pretty much famous in the tradition.
0: After Caesar dies in the Senate, What
1: happened? Uh, Panic. (laughs) People really didn't know what was going on. I mean, the whole assassination attempt is the most bungled, bloody affair. You've got conspirators stabbing each other and Brutus getting a nasty uh, slice of his own hand taken out. So it was a really horrible scene. And I think sometimes when we try and streamline the narrative, we tidy it up too much. And we have to put all that blood gore and drama and chaos back into the picture to see the the confusion that Rome was in. Now, the assassination of Caesar is very often seen as one of the greatest botch jobs of all time afterwards. Far from restoring the Republic and the freedom that they were allegedly fighting for, all they really achieved was further civil war and ultimately the emergence of one-man rule under uh, Caesar's adopted son and heir, Octavian, who... The world knows better today is Rome's first emperor, Augustus. So in the long term view, it was a complete failure. They didn't get the goal that they were aiming for. The conspirators didn't really know what to do next. And this is where the finger is pointed squarely in blame at Brutus, because there was no apparent backup plan. One of the things I've tried to argue in my book when I analyze these consequences, I don't really know how you plan for what to do after you've murdered a dictator um, certainly measures had been put in place they had thought about this quite carefully one of the conspirators decimus brutus uh, was putting on some shows and he had some gladiators so those gladiators were able to escort the conspirators to safety and they reassembled on the capitoline hill and from there they drummed up a sort of support network um, to to get people on their side people that hadn't been involved in a conspiracy, men like Cicero actually, who hadn't been conspirators or in on the the plot, but who would be useful additions to their cause. So they start creating a power base of their own on the Capitoline Hill, drumming up support for their position and trying to influence the the next uh, events. However, in the first 48 hours after the assassination, the normal story is that they failed to take control. there were lots of factors that could not have been predicted, not just in those 48 hours, but over the next week, months, and even years. And those factors do need to be put back into the story. You've got great personalities emerging. Mark Antony was underestimated. No one could have been predicted that the 18-year-old uh, Octavian could have gone to the heights that he did. Um, Cicero, for his own part, pursued a very different strategy, and Here again, we have that caveat of interpretation of the events is very much led by Cicero's interpretation. And we have to remember that he's disagreeing with the decisions that Brutus and Cassius in particular had made. And people are telling Cicero that he's to blame and he's on the self-defense. So the narrative is really, really difficult. And what I tried to do in the book was strip it down to see how it developed, why Cicero documents the evidence he did, and also what the other side might have been. But briefly, I think the conclusion I came to in the end was, in killing Caesar, they were fighting to restore a system of government, which had already witnessed these great power plays and fatal rivalries. And that's pretty much what they got. So in effect, they did restore the Republic very briefly, until itself imploded with all of those dynamics and the power struggles coming back. But this time, they were on the losing side. And the the spoiler alert here of course is that at the battle of philippi mark antony uh, who had been caesar's right hand man and octavian led their forces against the joint armies of brutus and cassius so the major fallout really is that there were two battles in in the october of 42 bc at the end of which brutus and cassius were both killed as well as an estimated 50,000 men so the immediate fallout was one of the, probably the greatest death tolls in rome's recent history but in the long term it was the upheaval of pretty much everything Rome had ever stood for, everything that the Republic had been taken to stand for, and Libertus, the electoral system, the checks and balances, later they were all gone.
0: That's staggering to think. Uh, Brutus's decisions aren't just affecting him and the elites and those in power, it, it's actually dragging in tens of thousands of, of everyday Romans.
1: Everyday Romans and the allies. The wars were campaign. The, the campaigns were led over in the Greece, over in the, the Greek East. So they had a lot of um, allies that they drummed up to fight for them. So yes, there were a lot of Romans that died, but also a lot of Rome's allies. We don't know the exact death toll of what was in relation to the other, but some of the biggest family names certainly appear on that death list.
0: And it appears that. Brutus uh, ends up committing suicide over this in the end?
1: Absolutely. Um, There's a beautiful death scene that is uh, recorded for us in Plutarch, uh, in which he dies as a man, very much like his uncle Cato had done, as a martyr resisting Caesar, or in this case, resisting what Caesar had stood for. And he takes his own life in a very philosophical way. Of course, there were others, portrayed it as an act of cowardice and that he gave up on all of his virtues at the end. But he did take his own life in large part because he saw the battle was over. Cassius had already taken his own life before him after the defeat of the in the first battle, the third of October. Uh, Brutus had continued the fight, but it was all lost.
0: And in light of that, um, line that caesar might have said um after after being assassinated um you know this becomes rather tragic
1: certainly we we do get the idea that history has come back to bite brutus and that what goes around did in fact come around
0: it's 2018 it's been 2000 years since this happened and we're still talking about it historians are okay. still debating the causes and and the motivations Um, What do you think was Brutus's significance to world history, and how has he been remembered over the ages?
1: You're absolutely right, and I don't think many men have captured the imagination quite like Brutus. The coin he minted after the Ides of March, with the uh, daggers flanking a cap of liberty, was already famous in antiquity, and it continues to be one of the most instantly recognisable coins of all times, according to recent surveys. But it's important to remember he's not a Caesar, or he's not even like an Alexander the Great, whose actions and abilities literally changed the faces of the worlds in which they lived. So I think Brutus's legacy has been more of a philosophical one, one which we use to think through knotty issues, um, such as how to act in the face of tyranny, or the value to place on friendship versus country. And here I think very few historical figures have inspired such a conflicting legacy, so the famous examples would be Dante's Inferno, where he's placed at the very center of hell uh, to be eternally chewed by Satan himself. He's, he's down there with there's Brutus, Cassius, and Judas of Iscariot. So he's become synonymous as the arch betrayer. And he's very much used like that. The et tu Brute is always used as shorthand for an act of betrayal in, in modern representations of it.
0: The worst of all sinners in human history.
1: The worst of all sinners, the biggest betrayer, the greatest traitor, absolutely. But then Others would see a different side of him. So in Gulliver's Travels, the narrator describes him as one of the most virtuous and benevolent, virtuous and benevolent people he's ever encountered. And Brutus really cultivated a reputation for virtue in his lifetime. It's what drove him. It was a very Roman quality. It was manly excellence combined with philosophical reflection. And they're just two of the most famous cases. We've also talked about Shakespeare's portrait of Brutus, which goes back to Plutarch as a man caught between public duty and private obligations. And so from there, the interpretation of Brutus, either as a selfless fighter, so to speak, a, a, a man fighting against dictatorship, or that of an opportunistic traitor, has kind of varied along with different historical and political circumstances spanning um, the, the years. And I think that's where his real legacy rests, because even today, more than 2000 years later, those dilemmas still remain. Dilemmas like the price of liberty, conflict between personal loyalties and universal ideals, and whether it works to remove a tyrant, they they remain as relevant as ever. And in that context, I think Brutus remains really good to think with. And and that's why we still continue to talk about him, because there are no clear-cut answers that there weren't in history, and there still aren't today.
0: Do you think we're going to reconcile these various interpretations anytime soon?
1: (laughs) No, (laughs) I can't see a way to it because the historical circumstances are so complex, modern circumstances are so complex. And what is so powerful about him is that we can use him very much as a way to think through these really difficult issues. And that brilliance would be lost if we came to an answer.
0: All right. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Catherine. Um, Where can people learn more about your book?
1: Absolutely. If they want to go to the website of Yale University Press, you can find descriptions and reviews of the book there. Or if you just want to take the plunge, it could be found on Amazon or in any good bookstore.
0: All right. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for coming on today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I want to thank my guest, Catherine Tempest, for being on the show, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Let's see, we're four episodes in, and if you're enjoying the podcast, would you consider giving it a review and sharing your thoughts? Also, subscribe to the podcast so you'll know right away when new episodes drop. If you are interested in ancient Roman history and the topic of Brutus, head over to the show's website at www.cantmakethisuppodcast.com. There you'll find today's show notes that discuss some of my personal reflections on Brutus, a link to Catherine's book, and some additional resources. And be sure to check out the Can't Make This Up History podcast on social media. You can follow it on Facebook at facebook.com/cantmakethisuphistorypodcast and on Twitter at cmtuhistory. I've been enjoying some great conversations on Twitter the last couple weeks, and I want to acknowledge Rudy Carrera, Ricky D. Phillips, Andrew McGuire. Melanie Soriani, and Dr. Scott and the Prof for recently following the show. Thank you for your support. And since we're talking about Rome this week, I'd like to say thanks to the Totalis Rankium podcast at Totalis Rankium for a really positive exchange this week. If you've never listened to it, they rank all the Roman emperors, and it's pretty awesome. That's it from me. See you back here for our next episode on October 26th.